This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is Volume 2, The Ancient World. Episode 24, Mycenaean Greece. temptation might be to try to follow on from last week's episode regarding the Minoan culture of the island of Crete. Certainly, it seems that the Minoan culture was very influential in the maturing of the Mycenaean culture. And ultimately, it would be the Mycenaean culture who would exert power and authority where the Minoans had done. However, it is vitally important to point out that the heartlands of the Mycenaeans were different and completely independent from the Minoans, and as such they can be considered to be the first significant ancient culture of the European mainland. So we ought to try to establish what was going on in this area of the world before we enter into the thick of Mycenaean culture. The Greek mainland to the south of the Balkan Peninsula was very familiar with agriculture, ceramics and metallurgy. 3000 BCE was long after the trade of Varna gold from the Bulgarian lands and also after the time of the copper working Iceman called Utsi to the northwest of this general area. This period of European history was discussed during the course of episode 18 of the first volume of podcasts covering the prehistoric world. Now, we believe the Mycenaeans did actually speak a language that is a relation of the ancient ancestor of modern Greek. And we do also recognise that Greek is an Indo-European child, much like the language of the Hittites, So there is likely to have been a migration of peoples from the Eurasian steppe to the Balkan Peninsula. It is extremely difficult to tell how closely related the Greek migration was to the Hittites migration. We just know that they are likely due to the success of the linguistic migration. There is very little evidence of any kind of powerful society on the mainland as the 3rd millennium BCE gave way to the 2nd millennium BCE. The societies of the Cycladic Islands seem to be quite prosperous in the run-up to this time before a new power base emerged on the island of Crete which would come to be known as the Minoan culture. The balance of power in the Aegean Sea shifted from the Cyclades Islands to the Minoan societies of Crete. What we do know is that settlements began to emerge on the mainland of Greece. Now it would be worth us having a quick and simple geography lesson about the Greek mainland. The Greek mainland is the very south of the Balkan Peninsula which is the home of the states of the former Yugoslavia to the northwest 
and Bulgaria to the northeast. The south of the Balkan Peninsula is where we find Greece. Greece is separated from Anatolia, which we've introduced in the ancient period as the home of the Hittites, by the Aegean Sea, where we find the Cycladic Islands with Crete to the south acting as an island barrier between the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. The very south of Greece is almost cut off from the Balkan Peninsula and is only accessible via a very narrow natural land bridge less than four miles wide. This land bridge is called the Isthmus of Corinth and the land to the south is called the Peloponnese and it is on this large area of land that we suggest the Mycenaean culture may have emerged. Early Settlement Our reference site and indeed the site where the culture is named after is called Mycenae and can be found on the Peloponnese relatively close to the island of Corinth which keeps the Peloponnese attached to the mainland. There is not much to identify as Mycenaean before 1700 BCE which affirms that a settled cultural success in the islands of the Aegean existed long before a successful culture on the mainland. So when the Mycenaeans came along there were already strong trading links and the most powerful of those was the Minoans of Crete who had effectively gained influence over the Cyclades through their own success. The site of Mycenae is believed to have been occupied before the emergence of the Mycenaeans because of the excavation work carried out there which demonstrates layers dating back to the Neolithic. One of the men closely associated with discoveries relating to the Mycenaean culture was a German archaeologist called Heinrich Schliemann. Schliemann was born in the town of Neubukov in 1822, which at the time was part of the Grand Duchy of Mecklenburg-Schwerin, a member of the German Confederation. It was in 1876 that Schliemann discovered graves that dated to around 1600 BCE. Then followed the discovery of pottery sherds and material before further graves were discovered dating back to 2100 BCE. So it is believed that this site may have experienced a period of greater wealth quite early on. The site of Mycenae is described as an Acropolis. Acropolis literally means a city on a summit, so a settlement on high ground. Mycenae is also flanked by two tall mountainous peaks, so it was somewhat protected by limited access but with a good vantage point over those ways of access. Other Peloponnese sites that emerged in the early 2nd millennium BCE would include Pylos and Tiryns. The site that we refer to as Pylos is actually associated with the palace of Nestor and this is due to the fact that they are mentioned in the same breath during Homer's epic called Odyssey. We don't really know much about Homer other than 
he was of Greek descent and that he was likely to have lived between the Mycenaean period of Greek history and the Archaic period, so roughly between the 12th and 8th centuries BCE. Homer wrote the Odyssey after he wrote the Iliad, which is his other famous piece of work, and both describe events which relate to the Trojan War. The Palace of Nestor is an archaeological site which has evidence of tombs containing ceramic pots. The same site also rewarded us with tablets inscribed in the Linear B writing style, which is believed to have descended from the Linear A writing style of the Minoans of Crete, and unlike Linear A, it has been deciphered. This site is on completely the opposite side of the Peloponnese to Mycenae, which demonstrates that this culture was dominating the region, sometime between 1600 and 1200 BCE. The other site that was mentioned earlier was Tiryns. Tiryns was itself a citadel, not too far from the modern city of Nafplion, which sits on the Peloponnese coast, looking out over the Aegean Sea in the direction of Crete. Tiryns may well have been the means for the Mycenaeans to have traded via the sea routes as the major centre of Mycenae was only 10 miles north of Tiryns. Tiryns had been suggested as the birthplace of her old friend Heracles, son of the Greek god of the sky, Zeus. The first physical observations that we can make of these sites is the fact that they all have good access to the sea and they were also well fortified. You wouldn't fortify your settlements unless you felt threatened. The Minoans of Crete did not appear to fortify their palaces, so this is very interesting. Why would the Mycenaeans feel under threat and the Minoans not? We will come back to this. Graves and Tombs The burial culture of the Mycenaeans is a hot topic for those trying to study the development and the influences on Mycenaean culture. Originally, it does appear that they practiced important burials in cist graves, which are simple rectangular stone boxes constructed in the ground. However, there was a significant change in the Mycenaean methods of final disposition. If we go back to the archaeological site of Mycenae, we can identify a small graveyard where 19 bodies are believed to have been laid to rest. They were buried in six large graves, not unlike cist graves, but considerably bigger. And we call these shaft graves to identify the difference. The fact that many valuable grave goods were discovered in the shaft graves suggests that those individuals who were buried here must have been of a high level of importance. All of these shafts are surrounded by a circular wall and it is believed that when it was constructed, it was outside of the main settlement which is likely to have been considerably smaller. The grave goods of these particular shafts are very interesting. Firstly, we see weaponry, 
which points towards a culture of warriors. We don't see too much like this on Minoan Crete, so this appears to be a cultural difference and a clue about what kind of pressures the Mycenaeans faced. However, it is important to point out that these grave goods weapons were also clearly ceremonial in some instances, highly decorated and not sensible for use as real weapons. The ceremonial weapons were buried with deceased males, while you would expect to see more jewellery with the females. Although females dressed in jewellery was an aspect of Minoan culture, it may be the case that males and females have more of a distinct role in Mycenaean culture than in the comparatively egalitarian Minoan society. However, some of the other grave goods from this site give us some different indications. Ceremonial drinking vessels such as cups and ritons. Now, ritons are actually conical vessels which are used to contain or funnel fluids and were likely to be ceremonially used. And ritons were very popular with the Minoans. Not only this, but ornamental bull's heads and labrises were found, and these are both believed to be sacred symbols of the Minoans. A labris is a double-headed axe. So it would make sense, and it appears evidentially, that although the Mycenaean and Minoan cultures were distinct and from different heartlands, that there is a cultural connection. It may be that the powerful Minoans had strong trade relationships with the Mycenaean peoples and possibly even had a degree of political influence over them. Possibly the most famous discovery from this, what we call Grave Circle A, was made by Heinrich Schliemann, whom we mentioned earlier in the podcast. It has been called the Mask of Agamemnon, and it is a gold funeral mask found placed over the face of one of the bodies. The mask surely won't have anything to do with Agamemnon though, sadly. Firstly, Agamemnon is a king named in Homer's mythological epic, Odyssey, so we don't even know if he existed. Secondly, if the Trojan Wars, which are contemporary to the lifetime of Agamemnon, were believed to have taken place directly before the late Bronze Age collapse, then we believe the actual mask is dated from 300 years before Agamemnon's lifetime. Finally, we know that Heinrich Schliemann obsessed over the epics of Homer, so the discovery of a gold mask at Mycenae in Schliemann's mind must have related to one of the characters of Homer's epics. A second grave circle at Mycenae called Grave Circle B appears to be larger than Grave Circle A and appears to have been in use over a number of generations dating from the 17th to the 16th centuries BCE. It seems that imported goods became more popular during this period and the importance of females increased. Two things which could point towards a Minoan influence. It is possible that political marriages could have been taking place and influencing the values and prosperity of the Mycenaeans. 
it does seem that Mycenaean tomb construction evolved and that they started to build chamber tombs which were hewn out of the land by carving out a tunnel which led to a central chamber and then ultimately these would be replaced by Tholus tombs which resembled the chamber tombs but this time they were actually built on the land. They were very elaborate and built with architectural intelligence. A nice symmetrical dome shaped tholos with a passage leading to a doorway to the outside world. Trade and Expansion So in order to establish how far Mycenaean culture and influence spread we can look for evidence of the Tholos tombs mentioned or we can look for evidence of Linear B scripts or we can look for Mycenaean ceramics although the ceramics are more likely to tell us more about the trade extents of the Mycenaeans. Mycenaean pottery has been found all over the place. It was beautifully created and decorated colourfully with stylish shapes and handles and would have also been used for the presentation of goods such as perfumed oils, which would have been contained within. So they would have been pleasurable objects to own, and possibly the envy of your peers, should you own one. These pots had been recovered on the Italian peninsula and the islands of Sicily and Malta. They have also been discovered along the west-facing coast of Anatolia, as well as Cyprus, the Levantine coast and Egypt. Imports included gold and amber from the north, copper and tin from the west, lapis lazuli and glass from the east, and amethyst and ivory from the south. The Mycenaeans were very much in the thick of the Mediterranean and Near East trade network and they would have discovered much of the trade links thanks to the success of the Minoans who they had come into close contact with. However, the presence of fortifications around Mycenaean settlements could have pointed towards a fear of attack, possibly even from the outwardly mobile Minoans themselves. The lack of significant fortifications around Minoan settlements in comparison to the Mycenaeans demonstrates that the Minoans with the dominant culture of the Aegean surroundings. However, the dynamics of this relationship would change at some point around the year 1500 BCE. If we go back to last week's episode, we discussed the volcanic eruption of Thera sometime around or after the year 1600 BCE. Exactly what the impact of this catastrophic event was is a little unclear, but certainly the Minoans would have been the primary candidate to have felt the effects. The Minoan settlement on the island of Thera was completely destroyed. Tsunamis are likely to have hit the north coast of Crete, and although the palace site of Knossos is relatively inland, should they have had a naval fleet on that coast, it would have certainly have been destroyed. One thing that does seem to have happened in the aftermath of the eruption is that the Mycenaeans identified an opportunity to take advantage of the weakened state of the Minoans. Now, 
There is very little in the written record to indicate the sequence of events, so we have to take those good old-fashioned wild guesses based on the evidence that we do have. And if we're bold enough as individuals, we stick our necks out and have an educated guess. The Minoans would have undoubtedly have felt some notable impact from the volcanic eruption and it does seem that the speculated dates of things point suspiciously towards the eruption being something that tipped the balance of power towards the already strengthening Mycenaeans. If the Minoans were exhausting all of their energies in recovering their losses, especially if they lost a lot of the naval resources which they would have relied upon to uphold their considerable trade network, then it would make sense that the Mycenaeans were best positioned to step in. So it therefore appears that the Mycenaeans took control of the Minoan palace sites and it may have been done aggressively. The Minoans seem to be helpless to resist the Mycenaeans. Some of the sites such as Malia and Zacros were destroyed by fire, although we can only assume that this was the work of the Mycenaeans. The Mycenaeans did choose to keep and occupy the Palace of Knossos, however. It may have been after this that the Mycenaeans created their own fortified palace city sites on mainland Greece, using the Minoan palace sites as a template. Unfortunately, after the terrorism and subjugation of Crete, it does appear that the amazing artistic flair of Greece and the Aegean was dampened down. Greek lands after 1400 BCE became more practical and there was no longer the time to spend on high quality artisanry. We can determine from the deciphered Linear B tablets that the Mycenaean societies would have been typically ruled by a Wanax. Military leaders and lesser lords would have served under the Wanax. The nature of society had changed and prosperity and imperial ambitions would become paramount to the Mycenaeans. The best artisans of Minoan society were now the property of the Mycenaeans. Not only would the Mycenaeans gain control of Crete, but they would also take control of any Minoan outposts that existed on the Aegean islands, including the Cyclades and the Dodecanese. They would also take control of various outposts on the western coast of Anatolia, whether by raid or by trade. The lands of western Anatolia are extremely intriguing. Between 1450 and 1200 BCE, it is a hotbed of mystery as historians try to decode the evidence available to finalise a sequence of events. As we have already discovered back in episode 5, the Hittites were the powerhouse of Anatolia. So any activity on the western coastlines would have captured their attention. We mentioned during that episode that Hittite scripts revealed societies related to that geographical region situated to the west of Hittite heartlands. We spoke of the Ashua, who were the confederation of city-states in western Anatolia around the year 1400 BCE. 
it has been suggested that the Ashura could be related to the modern word Asia, as the Greeks may have known them by the same name and called their Anatolian lands the lands of the Ashura. The Hittites claim to have conquered these peoples before acknowledging the emergence of a peoples called the Arzawa, mentioned in both Hittite texts and Armana texts of the New Kingdom of Egypt, so this would have been around 1350 BCE. However, after this the Hittites began to mention a people called the Ahiyawa, and it is not out of the question that the Ahiyawa are the Mycenaeans. The Arzawa appeared to be physically and politically sandwiched between the Hittites and the Ahiyawa, so everything points towards this being a real possibility. A very important city that seems to be a central one to this story is the city that the Hittites called Milawanda, and what we believe must have referred to Miletus, which sits near the mouth of the Meander River on the western coast of Anatolia, and of course modern day Turkey. Miletus demonstrates Mycenaean occupation through archaeological evidence. Hittite documents state that the Ahiyawa were in control of Milawanda, which could be interpreted to mean that the Mycenaeans were in control of Miletus. The Hittites claim that the Ahiyawa assisted the Arzawa against the Hittites. An archaeological layer of destruction at Miletus might represent a Hittite repercussion for the Mycenaeans there. A lot of ifs, buts and maybes, but impossible to disregard as a theory. We are confident that Mycenaeans settled the western Anatolian coast thanks to archaeological evidence. We don't need to rely on the Hittite texts to confirm this. Archaeological finds can also confirm that the Greeks expanded out of their Peloponnesian lands on mainland Greece too. We can see archaeological evidence of Mycenaean occupation in what would become the highly influential classical Greek city of Sparta, which is on the Peloponnese. However, we can also see Mycenaean remains at Chalcis, on the large island of Euboea, and at what would become Thebes, not to be confused with the Thebes in Egypt, of course. The Greek city of Thebes is in the mainland region of Boeotia. I will of course publish a map. So it would also make sense that the Mycenaeans occupied what would become Athens, and interestingly the modern day site of the Acropolis. Anyone that knows Athens will know of the Acropolis. It is the ancient citadel where the Athenians built the Parthenon around a thousand years after the time period that we are exploring here. However, the Mycenaeans also used this Acropolis too, and they would have built a palace there because the Mycenaeans had taken the skill of palace construction from those expert Minoans who had built such impressive palaces on Crete. Many of the Mycenaean palaces would have centred around a Megaron, which was a great hall where the Wanax, or king, would sit on his throne. One typical example of this would be at Dimini, 
which is further north on the mainland in the modern region of Thessaly. Considerable amounts of Mycenaean artefacts such as ceramics and jewellery are associated with the Egyptian royal family throughout the 14th century BCE, even through the Amarna period. So the Mycenaean culture was at its greatest extent. What could possibly go wrong? Decline. At their peak, the Mycenaeans were apparently quite remarkable. We can praise the achievements of the Minoans, but the Mycenaeans continued their success with different challenges to face. Artisanry was important, with the Mycenaeans being skilled metal workers and jewellery makers. They would export textiles as well as wine, oil and perfume distributed in fine ceramics, typically the reddish-brown terracotta in its base colour before being decoratively painted. These ceramic vessels would come in many different shapes and sizes to reflect the many different purposes for which they were created. Their architecture was considerable, with historians believing it to be a continuation of the skills of the Minoans, with their palaces and cobbled streets. However, they would advance tomb building, ultimately resulting in the Tholus tombs for which they are famed for, and the Cyclopean walls built with undressed stones, so called because later peoples believed that they were constructed by the Cyclopes, the mythological one-eyed giants, due to the size of some of the undressed stones used. The most iconic piece of architecture is the Lion Gate, which can be still seen at Mycenae, at the entrance to the citadel, so called due to the two lions carved out of the rock in the relieving triangle above the entrance. The relieving triangle is a void above the door frame which prevents pressure from higher courses of rocks above the frame. We have speculated that a relieving void was built above the central chamber of the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt for a similar reason. Mycenae is also the home of the most impressive Tholus tomb of the Mycenaeans, known to us as the tomb of Agamemnon, that mythical king mentioned in Homer's works, and alternatively called the Treasury of Atreus, the mythological father of Agamemnon. This is one of the largest domed structures of the ancient world and has that same relieving triangle above the entrance doorway. Good knowledge of the physics of architecture would have had to have been mastered by the Mycenaeans to construct such structures that would stay in place for over 3,000 years for us to see today. After 1200 BCE, the Mycenaean culture appears to disappear. So this begs the question, how did this successful society disappear? It seems that mainland palaces and citadels were destroyed by fire and Linear B scriptures disappear. So this would strongly suggest a deliberate displacement by another culture of people. However, other sources suggest earthquakes or infighting. The one thing we don't have 
is a contemporary written record for what happened. As we mentioned, Linear B tablets disappeared. With many of the activities of the Anatolian West Coast being recorded by the Hittites, we could look to their scriptures for clues. But as we have already discovered, the Hittites suffered a similar and more steep decline of power, ultimately disappearing themselves. So we are lost when looking for clues there. Scriptures discovered at Pylos, which we mentioned earlier as the settlement to the west of the Peloponnese, suggest that there were foreign invaders looking to attack the settlement at Pylos. There is a suggestion that they are coming from the north and that they were coming from the sea. This leads us to the legendary Dorians, who are believed to have migrated south towards the Peloponnese and ultimately settled the lands abandoned by the Mycenaeans, although the origin of the Dorians is steeped in speculation because a lot of what we rely on is written in classical Greek mythology and a lot of discoveries have been made with these mythologies in mind. So the disappearance of the Mycenaeans from their Peloponnesian heartlands in around 1100 BCE suggests displacement by the Dorian Greeks. If this is true, then the Dorians did not leave us any writings of their own for us to confirm this event. And if the suspected year of Mycenaean disappearance is 1100 BCE, then we have to recognise that they had been weakened some time before, or were weakening over time. The fact that Mycenaean palace sites were destroyed by fire from 1200 BCE either suggests a catastrophic event or a previous invasion. Archaeological discoveries in the Peloponnese have led experts to interpret the finds of human remains and artefacts as showing evidence of an earthquake around the year 1200 BCE and a Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory study sponsored by NASA seems to confirm a violent sequence of earthquakes concentrated over a 50-year period between 1225 BCE and 1175 BCE. So maybe the Mycenaeans were the victims of another culture, such as the Dorians, taking advantage of their weakened condition caused by natural disasters, which would be ironic if this is how they overcame the Minoans on Crete, if they were weakened by the volcanic eruption of Thera. We really do keep our fingers crossed that more subsequent excavations and discoveries, which certainly isn't out of the question, might provide more information about this fascinating period of history in the future. It could take just one discovery, like a written artefact, to provide us with a theory that can be supported by the majority of historians. Until then we have this wonderful air of mystery that is undoubtedly one of the major discussion points of ancient history. Not just the Mycenaean decline, but the wider Late Bronze Age collapse, which saw the disappearance of the mighty Hittite Empire of Anatolia and the subsequent decline of other mighty Bronze Age societies of Egypt and Assyria. Now, this takes us into a story that we have already told, 
So if you'd like to pick this up, this wider story, then you can go back to episode 6 of this podcast. The impact on the Assyrians is discussed in episode 7, and the impact on the Egyptians is discussed in episode 19. For a different perspective on the Mycenaean culture and the late Bronze Age collapse, then I would strongly recommend Ryan Stitt's The History of Ancient Greece podcast, and particularly episodes 6 and 7. As for us now, we're going to move on to an episode which was not part of the original plan, but I cannot resist covering it. So next week will be an episode about the fall of Troy. Finally, we must acknowledge the work of the British archaeologist Sir Arthur Evans. Evans continued the work of Heinrich Schliemann in and around the Aegean, including the discovery of Knossos and the determination of different cultures between the Mycenaean and the Minoan, as well as the discovery of many Linear A and Linear B tablets. We owe a debt of thanks to him for our modern understanding of these cultures. Thank you very, very much for listening to this week's podcast about the fascinating Mycenaean culture. Now, if this week's podcast got your late Bronze Age collapse juices flowing and you felt like going back to those previous episodes that I recommended, then why not try visiting the History of the World podcast YouTube channel where you can access the videos made by Nick Barksdale whose channel, The Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages, have made uh, video forms of the podcast episodes about the Hittites, the Late Bronze Age Collapse and the Phoenicians. So you can look at, the, uh, you can look at these podcasts in a completely different way with visual assistance maps and pictures that can illustrate the content of the podcast so it gives you a completely different perspective and it's very very good i highly recommend it if you go to the history of the world podcast website and go to the interact section there's now a button where you can actually click through to the history of the world podcast youtube channel and you can go to the playlist which encompasses these three videos so you can go and enjoy them there Now, if you do go and watch those videos, don't forget to write a complimentary comment underneath them. If for no other reason than to thank Nick Barksdale for his work and just to show him that you appreciate what he's done for this podcast. Now, as ever, as we say, don't forget that this podcast, it's not something that doesn't cost me any money to create. Uh, In fact, it does cost uh, a bit of money for me to create and it does help when you offer contributions so you can visit the patreon page if you uh, if you click on the support us link on the history of the world podcast website then you can then make a monthly donation it doesn't matter if it's a small donation it's all quite anonymous so no one knows how much you're donating if you go on there you can donate as little as one dollar a month some patreons do and uh, when you add it all together, it becomes something of significant value. So even if you donate $1 a month, you're contributing towards the upkeep of the podcast, which is a great thing, and you won't miss that dollar a month. So it's worth doing if you do value and enjoy the podcast. 
if you're not in a position to make any kind of fun financial contribution, then you can also rate and review the podcast on the chosen platform on which you listen to this podcast. And that's equally important because what that does, that pushes us up in the rating so that when people search for such podcasts, such uh, podcasts on popular history, then this is more likely to feature in their search. And that's what the value of rating and reviewing the podcast does. So do one or the other, at least one or the other. If you're enjoying the podcast for free, then that is all I would ask of you in in response to the hard work that's put into the podcast. Now, this week I also added a new podcast to the recommended list. It's called Pax Britannica. They, they haven't approached me at all. It's just something I stumbled across. And uh, I listened to a couple of episodes of it, and I really, really liked it. And it just talks about the uh, the modern history of Britain. And um, it's worth a listen if you're interested in British history, especially modern British history. Uh, you can get an idea. It starts from the Tudor period and, and then makes its way forward from there. So really interesting. If, if that period of history uh, interests you, then I recommend this podcast. You can find a link to it in the recommended section. Now, one of the more interesting posts that we received this week, uh, and this actually come through to the History of the World podcast forum, the discussion forum that we've set up. And uh, it's from a user called Clayton M sixty one, who's um, who's posted a, a like a media report on a study that was published, and it was and it was only published in the last week about the Philistines and uh, how uh, it relates to the story of the Sea Peoples and the Mycenaean Greeks. So something that relates to this week's podcast episode. And it basically it states about the fact that the uh, the DNA study of skeletons found dating to the period of the Philistines suggests strongly a Mycenaean Greek migration. So much as we spoke about there being an artifact not more than five minutes ago that may uh, that may enhance our knowledge and understanding of the period of the late Bronze Age collapse. This is one of those significant things and, and we can expect things like this to be um, discovered regularly. So I would strongly recommend you go and visit the website, go to the discussion forum and read the articles. There's about three articles that have been posted on there by myself and Clayton M61 that um, point you towards this study and uh, you can draw your own conclusions from it and by all means, please, 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 respond with your own opinion of it that's really something that i like more than anything is to hear your opinions on the things that are posted so read the study and let me know what you think a warm thank you to eddie burnett who made a comment on the facebook page um putting that the podcast is very well thought out presented in an easy to understand manner and that he binge listened to every episode in the last three weeks on CastBox and can't wait for the next episode. Well, here it is, Eddie. And uh, thank you for letting me know that you've been listening on CastBox. It does seem like a popular forum to listen to podcasts on that one. So thank you, Eddie. Don't forget, if you're not following the new Instagram page, it's worth following. Um, a lot of the things that I post are sometimes specific to the forums that I post them on so sometimes you'll see things on Facebook that aren't on Twitter and 
um, and on Instagram and, and likewise other posts might be on different channels so please do follow us wherever you find us and uh, in the Instagram um, the, the handle is the history of the world podcast so go and follow us there and join in the fun I just want to quickly take the time to acknowledge um, something I was sent on Twitter also another piece of latest sort, latest news in in terms of archaeological excavations, and it's about the lost palace of the once mighty Mitanni Empire, which has been unearthed in Kurdish Iraq, and that's northern Mesopotamia. And what I've done, I've retweeted the the tweet that was sent to me from Joel McKinnon regarding this uh, fascinating article and this fascinating site. So if you want to discover more about that, then visit the Twitter page. The Twitter handle is Hot World Podcast and uh, follow us on Twitter and you can get, take advantage of all this latest information that's being shared. Thank you very much to FPS Nifer who reviewed the podcast on CastBox and uh, a glowing review. Thank you very much. But what a fantastic resource. When I first found this podcast, I found it so engaging that I was compelled to listen to the entire series in sequence over the course of a few days. Each episode is so packed with information. I've listened to most of them more than once. Chris is a fantastic presenter and a truly calming presence. I would have loved to have had professors like him back when I was in university. I can highly recommend this show to any person who feels that their knowledge of the progress of human civilization might have some blind spots. Very enlightening. That's a really lovely review and I, I really am grateful that you've taken the time to post that on CastBox. So thank you very much, FPS Knifer, and uh, keep enjoying the podcast. Now, I received a message from a user called ACC through WordPress, which is the host of the History of the World podcast website. And uh, it relates to way back to episode six about prehistoric speech and language. If you remember, probably the most iconic part of that episode was Washo the chimpanzee, the chimpanzee who learned sign language back in the 20th century. And ACC said, I'm a bit late in finding this podcast, so these comments may be fairly irrelevant. They're never irrelevant. What are you talking about? My mind couldn't help but wonder if the 1970s attempts to teach chimpanzees to speak are, uh, are at all representative of their mental or even verbal capacity. In the days of human language evolution, necessity of better communication as well as a group effort would have been involved not teaching via memory. Obviously, the chimpanzee had its basic and social needs met regardless of utterance of words. Perhaps under evolutionary pressures of success stroke failure, the animal would have learned more. Perhaps if the group was attempting to achieve better communication, the animal would have been able to become more creative with it or utilise the one or two individuals more gifted in this area. Perhaps if this was a gen generational attempt successive chimpanzees would have been more successful. I'm aware that the study in itself is controversial for many reasons, but I was just allowing thoughts to wander about timelines and evolutionary process and intelligence capabilities. I think that's a very, very fair 
comment to make about that um, completely. And um, it's very, very ambiguous when looking at the uh, the speech uh, capabilities of our ancestors from three million years ago, the Australopithecines, which is the reason why I brought it into the episode. Um, it is the closest thing that we can get to potentially studying the capabilities, the learning capabilities of Australopithecines and their methods of communications. And it's a sad fact that it is about as close as we can get. So it is extremely controversial, very questionable, but at the same time, incredibly interesting. So thank you so much for the comment. And then just a quick thank you to JH from Indiana, USA, who was kind enough to let me know that one of the links on the website was broken. I, I wasn't aware of it, as uh, I'm sure you can imagine. And uh, I've changed it now so that anyone that can uh, access it will now be able to access it without any frustrating disappointment. So thank you very much indeed, JH from Indiana. Well, thank you to all of you. Um, the website has now bust through 7,000 listens this week. It's the first week that we've had over 7,000 listens. So it's gaining more and more popularity all the time. And the more we talk about it, the more we communicate about the podcast, the more people become aware of it and people can enjoy the experience of listening to it. It's going to be a long process, but it's going to be a very valuable and rewarding process. So stick with us and enjoy enjoy learning just as I am um, and uh, hopefully this project can go on for many many years to come next week it's going to be an extremely interesting episode it's going to be about the Trojan War an episode I hadn't planned to make but um, temptation got the better of me I think it's going to be a very interesting episode so I'm going to jump on my magic carpet travel to where we believe that Troy may have existed and find out whether all this stuff about wooden horses was actually true. So join us next week. Thank you very much for listening, and have a fantastic week, everybody. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.